I have a question. What are some of those memorable milestones that mark the beginning of a person's life? What are those things that you commit to memory or perhaps if you journal, you record them down in your, in your journal or your you're thinking about your, your children as they're growing and the things that you want to remember. What are some of those things at the very beginning? Of course, you, you, you want to remember the birthday, right? That's the most important thing. When was, when was your child actually born? Uh, we need to, to celebrate that each year, and um, we, we don't forget birthdays or try not to forget birthdays. What are some of those other things? Okay, when they begin to walk, or uh, perhaps before that, the, the first bath. You know, people like take pictures of the first baby bath, and uh, or, or perhaps the first time that uh, the child eats solid foods. Remember, uh, our most recent child that reached that milestone was, uh, was ready for some solid foods, and he, um, he was ready for them and went, went to town when those were offered to him. Uh, first steps, of course. What about first words? Do we, we remember those, don't we? The first time the, the baby says the thing. Now, our kids' first words were always, Dada. I mean, and you can't blame them, right? Because, you know, dad is awesome. We are going to say dada. I don't know what your kids' first words were, but whatever they were, they, they, I'm sure they mattered to you. First words matter. But you know what? So do last words. The last things that come from a person in this life. And in our text here this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to read and reflect upon some of the very last words that the Apostle Paul ever spoke or wrote, or at least the very last that we have a record of that have survived for us today. Paul's writing this, this personal letter to Timothy within weeks or perhaps even days of his own martyrdom. And by the way, if you don't know the history, Paul was martyred by beheading out, just outside the city of Rome. After 30 years of tireless ministry as an apostle, he will say in this passage that his life has already been poured out as an offering to God and that the time of his death is near. And indeed, it was quite near. He says in verses 7 and 8 of here, chapter 4 of our text, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful and now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. So what does the apostle say now here at the end of his life? What are those important words that mark sort of his final, uh, the final sentiments that he has from his heart here at the end? Well, we're going to read... Uh, we're going to continue here from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, but we're going to go back a few verses, back up to verse 1 of chapter 4. If you have a guest Bible, we're on page 961. I'm just going to read just a few verses, beginning here in verse 1, um, down to verse, verse 5. The apostle writes, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. 
They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. The last words from the apostle are preach the word. Now, it's true. Paul's writing to his protege, Timothy, a young man who was clearly called and gifted for the ministry of the word, but he really writes in, by extension to that to all who are called to the ministry of the word. And I would even go as far to say as Paul writes at some level even to all Christian people. His solemn exhortation is to preach the word of God, that body of teaching that the church has received and that the church is to then pass on to others. It is what he calls there in verse 3, that sound and wholesome teaching or doctrine. It is, as he calls in verse 4, the truth. And in verse 5, it is the good news. And what he says at the end of the chapter before to, that, that Timothy, and, and also you and I, by the way, it is what we certainly know is true. There's a certainty to this pure teaching of God's word that we're called to be about. And not every Christian is called to be a preacher by vocation. And you're probably sitting there this morning saying, <laughs> it, is, it is not for the faint of heart. It is for those that God has called and equipped, just like the things God has called and equipped you to. I think of some of the things that you all are doing in, with your lives by, by God's calling upon your life. And I say, that I am not called to that because I'm not equipped for that. I'm not called to that. So God has not called everyone to the exact same vocational thing. No. But Paul's charge is laid upon all of God's people in every age to pass on what God has spoken, what has been handed down, what has been committed to the church as a sacred trust. The church of Jesus Christ is not just to hear the word of God and not just called to believe the Word of God and even obey the Word of God. We're not called to just simply guard or protect or preserve it or even to suffer for it or continue in it. We are called to all of those things, but we're called to more. We are called to preach the Word of God. We are called to proclaim the Word of God like, like a herald. And that's what Paul is leaving behind with his final strokes of a pen or quill or stone on rock, or whatever he's writing here with and on. He's, he's saying these words for, for Timothy, but also for us today. Now, in our examination of, of the church's mandate to proclaim the word, I want to point out this morning as we work through our text, three crucial aspects to its character and two aspects to its basis. So what is, when he's talking about preaching the word, preach in what way and then for what reasons? Number one, we are to proclaim it with urgency. Verse 2, he says to Timothy, be prepared. But this expression in the original language means more than simply be ready. Okay, so when I'm getting ready to go somewhere, I want everyone that's coming with me to be prepared to go. All right, so that's one sense of the word. You're, you're, you're ready. You're, you're able to go when the time has come. But, but there's more to that. It's we need to go now. 
you're ready so that we can go now. It's not just for the sake of being ready. There's a purpose behind the readiness. And Paul, as he's using these words, he, he gives us this expression where he says, be prepared, but it's, it's, there's an urgency to it that should shape and form the type of preparation that he's talking about. When I was in college, I, I had the opportunity to participate in a formal debate with one of my classmates on the topic of uh, young earth creationism versus old earth creationism. So it wasn't creationism versus, say, evolution. It was, is, is the earth old or is it, is it young or is it old? And, and so it was a really unique experience and uh, there was quite the gallery of students and others, other spectators who came to watch that and it was a, a really, it was a growing learning time for me. Um, I, in case you're wondering, I am a young earth creationist and I'm, I'm pretty firmly entrenched in that uh, particular position. Um, but at the same time, some of the people that I know and love and respect most in this life uh, hold a different position, position than I do. And so I, I've been able to cultivate a very uh, respectful, you know, open posture to, to their perspective. And I, I like the discussion and the debate. Um, and, and I don't draw a line in the sand that cuts me off from them. And I hope if, if you're on the other end of the spectrum, you don't do that to me. I hope we can have a, a good, meaningful uh, dialogue about that. I, res I respect the other voices in the discussion. But in college, as I did my own sort of looking into the, to the topic and the discussion, I became very passionate about uh, my position. And, and really, for me, it wasn't a matter of, of dating the earth. For me, the, the crux of the issue was, what is the role of the Word of God as we assess truth? So if I'm, if I'm looking at evidence of something, what lens am I looking at the evidence through? Am I looking at it from a, a scientific lens? Am I looking at it through a sort of a worldly lens? Am I looking through it through a purely philosophical lens? Or am I looking through it through a biblical lens? And for me, I want to begin everything with God's Word. I start with God's Word, and that gives shape to everything else I think and believe. And that's the issue to me that is at the center of, of that debate. And so we had this debate. Um, I thought I, I did well. Of course, everyone who... <laughs> who debates think that they did well. In my mind, I was able to respond to all the, the topics and, and articulate my position, and I, came, I was way overprepared, as I tend to do. I brought a binder about this thick of, of just resources that I could turn to if I needed them. I ended up not using any of them, so it was a colossal waste of time. Um, but my preparation paid off, I felt like. And, and at the end, the professor, who was sort of moderating things, gave the, the spectators the opportunity to ask questions or to give feedback or reflection on how they thought the debate went. And there was various comments here and there, but there was one that stood out to me that I've never forgotten about, and it's always kind of bothered me. There's one student who said something along these lines in reference to how loud or how animated I had become during my times. He said something to this effect. He said, people get loud when they aren't confident. Now, he has a point. I mean, you, sometimes the loudest voices are the ones that are standing on the shakiest grounds. And it's as if they, they need to overcompensate for their lack of foundation with volume. But what that person in the class that was giving that feedback failed to understand is that people, yes, people get animated and people get loud, if that's the word you want to go with, also when they're passionate about something. It's not just lack of confidence that contributes to this condition. It is also passion. There, when there's a sense of urgency to what we're talking about, there should be some sort of reflection of that in the way we speak, the way we operate, the way we connect with people, the way we articulate ourselves. Listen, Paul's not saying, I don't think for a second, to Timothy or to us, that we should be loud and obnoxious. 
And there are a lot of loud, obnoxious Christians. That's not what he's saying. And I don't think he would ever counsel young Timothy to come across as desperate or manipulative. But I think what he is saying is there has to be an urgency that characterizes the church's proclamation of the truth of God's word. Friends, you and I are entrusted with truths pertaining to matters of life or death. They are the grandest of of issues. They have the greatest significance, the, the vastest consequences, the eternal destination of human souls hang in the balance. Time and eternity is of the essence. And if those things are true, and if you listen to the Scriptures and you care about the Scriptures, and you have imbibed the Scriptures into your life and heart, and you care about sharing that, the truth that they are, with with the world around you, then, well, how can we ever talk about it with cold indifference? How can it ever just be some sort of casual conversation that we have just because it's convenient or because it's interesting or it's trivia or whatever other ways or, or sheepishly or without confidence. How can we ever do that if these things are all true? No, you and I are to proclaim with urgency the Word of God whether the time is favorable or not, he says there in verse 2. In good times and in bad times, when it's easy, when it's challenging, we are to urgently share the truth. Secondly, we are to proclaim it with relevance to our immediate audience. In other words, you and I are to not just share with urgency, but we need to share it in such a way that the form or the mode in which we share it is suitable for the time or the situation. Timothy is told there in verse 2 to do three different things, isn't he? Correct, rebuke, and encourage. And those are all very different things when you dissect down to the base of what they are. It's not the same thing to correct someone as it is to rebuke someone. And by the way, the word correct is probably better translated prove, as if to convince. It's not the same thing. Now, there might be overlap. There might be times where in order to rebuke a person, you have to convince them of a particular truth. And there may be times where after you rebuke a person that, uh, uh, in fact, all the times when there's rebuke in a person's life, it should be followed up with a degree of, of encouragement and comfort. And, and you know, truth and love are always held together in the Christian witness and in the way we minister and interact with people. Absolutely. But those three things are not the exact same three things. And sometimes a person needs all three aspects of, the, of that proclamation, and there's times where they don't. There's times where a person is struggling with, they're not struggling with sin. They're, they're not outright living in rebellion against God. There's not some sort of major moral crisis in their life. Perhaps, perhaps there's just a crisis of faith. Perhaps they need, they need some sort of biblical counsel that convinces them and con- convicts them of what is true, not necessarily of what is wrong in their life. Maybe there are times where someone needs a sharp criticism for a particular moral issue in their life. And I hope that, that the people in your life that that describes, I hope that they have a friend who loves them enough to, to point it out in truth and love, that being you. Not the, the kind of Christian walking around with the plank sticking out of your eye that you're utterly unaware of as you're seeking to point, pick out the speck. Not that at all. The type of person who is fully aware of their own shortcomings and their own need of accountability, who's willing to say in love, I love you, brother, I love you, sister, but let me tell you, God's word says what this thing that is present in your life is, is 
not going to result in something wholesome or good for you. And it's because I love you that I will not let this continue without me speaking into it in love. That's the type of person that we all need in our lives, present company especially included. Sometimes people just need biblical support. Sometimes people just need you to to share a Bible verse of, of comfort, something that encourages them when they're going through a hard time, that reminds them that they're not alone, that God is at work in, the, in their lives, that even though times are hard, to trust God's grander purposes and design. And, and that's very different than, than rebuke. That's very different even perhaps than, than proving something to be true for them. Paul is telling Timothy with very wise counsel, Yes, proclaim God's word, but don't do it in some impersonal, sort of cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all method, but no, do it in a personal way, one that connects with a person, applies to a person's life right where they are. And God's word is sufficient for all of those times. No matter what you are going through or what someone in your life is going through, God's word speaks into that, and you and I are to proclaim it with urgency, that this is what you need as you're going through this thing. This is what you need more than anything. You need the comfort and the encouragement and the wisdom and the the conviction that comes from the truth of God's word. And you and I are are to be the people who proclaim it. Thirdly, all of our proclamation is to be done with patience. Patiently do these things, Paul says. Now you might be sitting there thinking, doesn't that contradict point number one? If you tell me I'm to proclaim and share and stand upon the truth of God's word with urgency, is that not contradictory to now you're telling me to do it with patience? And the answer, of course, is not at all. It's not contradictory at all. I, for one, am grateful for the tremendous balance that this brings to what Paul is saying. That this qualification of, of patience, it's important for you and for me. I have seen many zealous young Christians eager to share their faith and convince everyone around them that everything that they believe is right and true and that they should believe what they believe to be right and true in that moment. And yet in their passion and in their zeal, they overwhelm and overpressure and sometimes turn people away. I've seen it. Where the, the urgency and the zeal and the passion are, are not conditioned by patience. The truth is not everyone in your life who needs to hear you share something from the Word of God, not every single person in your life is ready to respond when and how you think they should. As much as we know what is best for them, if you've been awakened to the truth of God's Word and its relevance for your life, and it is ministered to you, and you know that is what they need to hear, they need to hear this thing, is what's going to bring life to them, it's what's going to change their their attitude, and perhaps even their eternal destiny. And we absolutely need to speak these things into people's lives. But, But listen, there has to be a patience with which we convey the truth. Not everyone is ready. Some people are so ready to, to hear what, what God is speaking through his word, through you. It's almost like low-hanging fruit. It's just ready to be picked. In fact, you go, I've had some tomatoes on my horrible tomato plants that just did the worst job this year. I must be the worst gardener in the history of the world. How hard is it to grow tomatoes? Apparently, it's the hardest thing on earth. Um, fortunately, I don't raise children like I grow tomatoes, at least as far as I can tell. But I have had a few that were just so ready to be picked that all I had to do was just touch it to see how it was on the other side and just came off in my hand. Effortless. And there are people in your life that for whatever, maybe it was someone before you, 
or 10 people before you, or a circumstance in their life, or something the Holy Spirit has said to them, or something they read. Something has happened that has primed them to the point where all they need is just your gentle nudge. And the fruit is effortless. But you know as well as I do that that's not everybody in your life. There's some people that need to hear the proclamation of God's word in whatever form it comes to their time of need a hundred times, maybe a thousand times. They need to hear it again and again and again. And Paul's saying, yes, be urgent, absolutely be relevant and personal in their lives, but don't force anything. Don't manipulate. Don't overpressure. And yet, don't give up. There's this, there's this fine line that you and I are to walk every single day, and you and I don't have the wisdom on our own to know exactly how to walk it rightly. We need the Holy Spirit to guide. We need the Holy Spirit to, to help us take those steps. Lord, how should I speak into the life of this person that I know needs to hear from your word? And perhaps the, the patience that Paul is urging us to here is less about patience with the other person, and perhaps it's more about patience with the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's what Paul is counseling young Timothy and you and I here today to have patience for. Not just wait on that person to finally be ready and to keep offering and keep offering, but maybe, maybe we need to be patient with the movement of the Holy Spirit. Because at the end of the day, neither you nor I can change a person's mind or heart. We can't do it. That's not our job. Our job is to proclaim. Our job is to witness. Our job is to testify to the truth and to live it out by example day in and day out with, with the help of God. But it's the, whole, the job of the Holy Spirit who, just like the wind, moves when and how he wills. He is the one who changes a person's heart. No one's going to make it to heaven because you or I pressured or manipulated them into it. No, they will only make it into heaven when the Holy Spirit does such a work in their heart by grace that they are enabled to receive the word of God that you are sharing with them. So every proclamation, every moment of witness, every moment of reaching out has to be connected deeply to an intimate connection to God the Spirit. How should I say this word? When should I speak into the situation? Some, it's very clear when and how, and others, it is not. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've got people in your life, maybe it's a family member. Sometimes that's the hardest person to share God's word with. A parent, <laughs> a grandparent, a child, a sibling, a spouse. And you wrestle and you wrangle with what should I say and when should I say it and how should I say it. And, and the truth is you need to say it, but the right way. And the Holy Spirit, he's the one who's going to guide you, and he's the one who's going to prepare that other person for it. You have to and must wait for him. So preach the word urgently, relevantly, and patiently. But why? What's the, the basis for, what's the ground for this exhortation that the apostle gives us right here in these final words to Timothy in chapter four? Well, for two reasons. Number one, the coming of Christ, as he says in verse one, to judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. 
If there was ever a motivation to proclaim the word of God, it is the fact that Christ is coming back. And he's coming soon. Paul believed firmly in the coming of Christ and in the subsequent judging of the nations. He's been writing about it from the very beginning of his epistles. It's something that is found all throughout the, the appearing of Christ, the day of the Lord, the second coming, the return, whatever you want to call it, whatever the language the scriptures give us, it is the fact that Jesus came to the earth, he lived, he died, he descended, he rose again, he ascended, and that's not the end of the story. He's coming again. And he's coming personally. And he's coming powerfully. And he's coming publicly. And he's coming visibly. And he's coming to establish a kingdom that will never end. And with him, he brings blessing and judgment that, that will, has consequences for eternity. It is not something to trifle with or to take lightly or to dismiss or to say it's for another people at another time. He could come before I finish this message here this morning and you and I are called to be a people who live in light of that reality. Paul was firmly convinced that not only was he coming back, that he could come back at any moment in time. It's an appearing that he and as all Christians should eagerly look forward to. And he lived his life like all the rest of the writers in the New Testament. You can find everywhere in there. They all viewed themselves living in that moment 2,000 years ago as being in the last days. The last days were not some distant sliver of time reserved some, for some future Christian group in, in, to come. Yes, there are specific passages that speak of the very last days in a sense. But in terms of the end times, the end times are the, the age of the church. That's the view of the New Testament writers. We are in the last days today. All of the New Testament writers understood the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as end time events. And so, if that is true, then all people living in the span of time between the first and second coming of Christ are living in the, in the last days, and therefore we are all counseled to live all of life in light of Christ's imminent Return Because if you don't, it'll have massive implications for how you live your life. And if you do, so does that as well. There's a quote from a, from a book that uh, William Law wrote titled, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. And I want to read this to you. It's not exactly about the second coming of Christ, but I want you to hear the essence of what he's saying. He says, represent to your imagination that your bed is your grave. Imagine that. Going to bed at night, you're imagining yourself as lying down in your own grave. That all things are ready for your internment. That you are to have no more to do with this world and that it will be owing to God's great mercy if you ever see the light of the sun again or have another day to add to your works of piety. Then commit yourself to sleep as, as one that is to have no more opportunities of doing good, but is to awake among the spirits that are separate from the body and waiting for the judgment of the last great day. Such a solemn resignation of yourself into the hands of God every evening, in parting with all the world as if you were never to see it anymore, is a practice that will soon have excellent effects upon your spirit. Again, I know he's not talking exactly about the exact same thing I'm talking about here, but what he is talking about is living life as if this was the last day you have to live. Whether you have a heart attack tonight and, and, and die, or whether Jesus comes back while you sleep, 
Have you lived your life in light of the fact that eternity is a breath away? It is a breath away for every one of us here, including young people. As hard as it is to even imagine a young person losing their life, it's something they have to think about as, as much as those of you with the whitest hair in the room. And I'm getting there right here on the chin. They, you know what my son calls me? Graybeard. Or frost giant. I'm a frost giant. Good grief. God help us all. It's the next generation right there for you, church. <laughs> Hear what Law is saying. He's saying, live each day as if it were your last. And what does that look like? Oh, live all of life seeking to glorify God. Absolutely. Represent him to the lost and the dying in the world. Speak truth and love. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Pursue that holiness without which no man can see the Lord. And as Paul says, preach the word. Preach the word. As if your life and their life depended upon it. As if this is the last dying breath that you have to breathe an utterance to another person. May it be something from his word and not just something from somewhere else. Preach the word. He's coming back soon. There has to be a prophetic, forth-telling witness to the church of Jesus Christ in this world because this world, before too long, maybe today, will come to its end. The second basis for his exhortation, in addition to the one from verse 1, is found in verses 3 and 4, where he says, For a time is coming. Preach the word in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage. Do all these things with good teaching, with patience, in light of the return of Christ, but also because a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching, they will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Now, there's some expressions in that that make me wonder if maybe Paul, at the end of his days, was, had a certain thing in mind when he wrote this. And the thing that, that strikes me is, I wonder if Paul, as he's writing these words, was taken back to Acts chapter 8, or chapter 7. Do you remember Acts chapter 7? What are we, what are we uh, getting ready to pray for here in just a few moments? The persecuted church, aren't we? When did the church begin to be persecuted? Acts chapter 7. Who was the first person to die for their faith? Stephen. Stephen had the audacity to stand in front of the very people who had put Jesus to death just practically days before, weeks before, and he looked them in the eyes, and what did he do? He preached the word. And as the irritation grew and as the anger rose, he had a vision. And he says, I see the Son at the right hand of honor, the right hand of the Father, the position of honor. By the way, he's not sitting. I think that's interesting. We know that when Christ ascended and he entered into his session as the, the, the reigning king, he's seated in that position. But when he sees Stephen give up his life, he stands. Christ honors the martyr. 
And when Stephen shares this vision, what does it say the people did? Do you remember? I want to read it to you because a paraphrase isn't good enough. At the end of Acts chapter 7, it says, Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. There's, how's that for a picture of a child having a temper change? La, 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 la. They cover their ears, they shout, then they rush at him, drag him out of the city, and begin to stone him. That'll shut him up. That'll put an end to this. And the very next verse says, or the very next sentence, same verse, 58, next sentence, his accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who, by the way, at the very first verse of chapter 8, a few verses later, says, was one of the witnesses who agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. I can't help but wonder if Paul was remembering the reaction of the crowd, perhaps his own reaction, when confronted with truth that they don't want to hear. I think a time is coming, he says, when others in the same fashion will vehemently re uh, reject truth. And instead they will chase after myths and seek out teachers and leaders and gurus to tell them what they want to hear when people will substitute their own perspective for God's perspective, when their own subjective preferences become the final arbiter and measuring stick of what is right and good. A time is coming, the apostle says, and I believe is already here. Perhaps now more than ever. Let me turn off my microphone because I have to cough. I just wonder if maybe the enemy doesn't want me to say what I'm about to say. <clears throat> the other day, Pastor Aaron sent uh, Pastor Jeff and I a text. We have a little text thread the three of us have had for years, and we still keep in touch. Most of the stuff is not particularly serious or uh, <laughs> meaningful in any way other than just to get a laugh. But every now and then we'll send something meaningful, and Aaron sent one the other day. And it was an article about a mainline denomination that is promoting what they call a new do-it-yourself spirituality. It comes in the form of a smartphone app that is intended to reach, you know, the younger generations. And so, basically, here's the goal. Their goal is to provide people with what they call authentic spirituality. Isn't that the word of the day? One of the words of the day, authentic. It's authentic. In other words, it's one that's true to who you are. And so, the app can serve up whatever theology reinforces their own self-identity or self-expression. And they list, you, to be authentically spiritual, do you need feminist theology? Do you need queer theology? Do you need, you know, cr critical race theory theology? Whatever theology is out there, this app can serve it up to you so you can have an, an authentic spirituality. Not an orthodox biblical theology, but one that fits one into how you think and how you feel, what your itching ears want to hear. 
And what happens if someone needs pastoral care? Well, there's an app for that. If someone needs pastoral care, they just need to flip on their phone and with the power of uh, um, artificial intelligence, a digital assistant who looks like a real person and sounds like a real person and interacts with you like a real person does and one that knows all about you because you've put all the information into your phone and they know everything all about you, which is creepy, by the way. And by the way, it knows every theology out there. It can serve you up just exactly what you need for an authentic spirituality. It can minister to you. And as I read that and listened to this video, I just sat there thinking, that's just what people need, isn't it? Clippy the clip art priest. You kids are like, who's Clippy? Well, let me tell you. If you had Microsoft Word in 1998, you know exactly who Clippy is. Yeah, that's just what people need, isn't it? They don't need a real human person to sit across from them in their time of confusion or in their time of sin or in their time of suffering and look them straight in the eyes to correct or to rebuke or to encourage with urgency, relevance, and patience. No, you don't need that. You need an app that sits in the cloud that can serve you up woke, subjective nonsense to make you feel better about the disaster that your life has become. Yeah, that's exactly what people need. And that's the stuff being peddled by mainstream denominations. You don't need truth. You need Clippy. Was Paul seeing the 21st century American church when he penned these words? Well, in a sense, no. He was seeing his world. He was seeing Timothy's world, the world that, would, that Timothy would live in when Paul is gone. He saw the world to come. Yes, he saw all the world between his time and all the way until the end, including our own, by the way. He's seeing the world, a world that is in blatant, defiant rebellion against its creator, a world that's re that rejects the truth, that comes up with its own ideas of what God is like. Oh, this must be what God is like because it suits my needs or how I feel. It reinforces my life decisions or what I desire. I'll just craft a God after my own image, and in my foolishness, I consider myself wise. Read Romans 1. It's Romans 1 all around us, all the time until Christ returns. That's the world that Timothy's going to minister in. That's the world that you and I find ourselves in. And the question is, what does that world need? What does it need? It needs Christian men and women, boys and girls, to man their post, to stand guard, to stand at the ready, to be prepared at a moment's notice, to know the Word of God, to believe the word of God and to proclaim the word of God. To stand firm on what is right and true according to the scriptures. By the way, you can do that Tuesday at the ballot box. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you which party you should be a part of. I'm not going to tell you any of those things. What I'll tell you is you need to vote and you need to vote according to the truth of God's word as much as you're able to. We need to stand firm on what is right and true according to the scriptures, no matter the pressure that you and I are going to face. And there is pressure for anyone who stands up for God's word in this culture. Whether it's pressure from someone in the house, pressure from a neighbor across the street, pressure from the media, pressure from the law, 
pressure from the culture as a whole, you and I need to stand firm on what we know is true. As Paul says in verse 5, keeping a clear mind in every situation. How do you keep a clear mind? How are you going to resist the fog that the enemy, who is the prince of the power of the air, that's what Paul calls him in Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air, meaning this murky fog, that's how he operates, in a cloud of deceit. And as that cloud encroaches towards your life, how do you keep clear the truth of God's word? Keep a clear mind. Fearlessly enduring hardship and suffering, refusing to compromise, doing the work, he says, of the evangelist in telling others the good news of Jesus, persevering in the work that God has entrusted to you until the task is completed. In his letter to Joseph Brenson, John Wesley wrote the following. It is dangerous to depart from Scripture either as to language or sentiment. In other words, as, as far as what it actually says and what it means. And you should know both. We need to know what the Scriptures actually say and what they actually mean. And Wesley says it's dangerous to depart from either of those at any point in time. I believe that most of the controversies which have disturbed the church have arisen from people's wanting to be wise above what is written, not contented with what God has plainly revealed there. What have you or I to do with that difficulty? I dare not, will not reason about it for a moment. And this is one of the things I love most about John Wesley, the, the spiritual father of the Methodist tradition. I believe what is revealed and no more. The same man who said, give me that book. I'm a man of one book. No matter what it costs me, no matter what it means for my life, give me the book of God. I do not pretend to account for it or to solve the difficulties that may attend it. In other words, I'm sorry if you don't like what it has to say. <laughs> it's not my word, it's his. I know it's hard, it's hard for me. I know it's confusing, I don't understand it all. I know it's gonna cause change in your life, it's changed me. And I'm not gonna explain it away, I'm not gonna make excuses for it, I'm not gonna apologize for it. And the world doesn't need that from you, it doesn't need your excuses, it doesn't need your apologies, it doesn't need your silence. It needs you to speak it and proclaim it without fear, without being shamed, without tweaking it to suit. How will this be easier? If I just take off that express, that clause at the end, <laughs> if I just modify it a little. This is not a time, church, to be discouraged, afraid, to trim the, to trim the message to make it more palatable to the world. It's time for the opposite of that. In light of Christ's return, and in light of the world that we find ourselves in, it is time to be the opposite of those things. If the darker and harder the times, the deafer the people, what's the solution? The clearer and more persuasive the proclamation must be. The more the world resists the truth, the more the church must be determined to stand upon it. 
be that church today. Be that church. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Remain faithful to the end. Be people who are worthy recipients of the prize prepared for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for a church that stands upon it, that has stood upon it for 76 years. And Lord, as, as we live and breathe and as we make decisions today, what kind of church we're going to be, we say together, this church will continue to stand on the word of God as long as we draw breath. No matter what pressures we face. Every Sunday, the, the messages from this pulpit, pulpit that are built upon your word go out to the ends of the earth. And it's only a matter of time before, before someone is offended, someone seeks to cancel, someone's going to put pressure, someone's going to with, withhold something or, or, or do something. It's only a matter of time. Will we be a church who continues to stand on the word even then? Lord, we commit together today to be that church, to never give up, to never give in, to never back down, to speak the truth in love, in season, out of season, to proclaim your word patiently, correcting, rebuking, encouraging, remaining faithful to the end. Lord, it's only possible by the power of your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come and embolden your people here today. I know for a fact there's individuals in this room who are going through really, really hard times, and they, they, don't, they don't know exactly what to do, or perhaps they know what to do and lack the strength or the conviction or the courage or the opportunity to do it. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each of them right now. You would show them how the answers for the questions of life are in your word and, and they're possible and they have power because you superintend the reading and the believing and the proclaiming of the word of God and you are present in their lives right now. Lord, would you make yourself known to them? Would they sense even now the, the conviction that you bring? Would they sense even now a peace? Jesus, you promised your church a peace in the midst of troubles in the world. Lord, would you bring peace to your people right here in this room? Would you bring peace to the one in seven around the world who are suffering for their faith right now? And would you loosen our tongues that we might be the heralds to a lost and depraved culture in light of your return, in light of what you've called us to be. Lord, help us to be what you've called us to be. By the power of your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.